I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania. I'm Andrew Keats. I'm Scott Lewis. We host the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Every Friday, we break down the news we think you should know in San Diego. Things like housing, homelessness, education, election, political drama, the big stories that dominate the news, and the ones that slip under the radar. We also interview local lawmakers, policy experts, and other investigative journalists. The Voice of San Diego podcast, every Friday. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. From So Say We All in San Diego, welcome to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, bringing you true stories from the live monthly showcase of the same name. And today we're serving up part two of Will It Fit, a charcuterie board of stories to keep your headspace zen. Your first dish is coming from Caitlin Malcolm with her story, Did We Fit? Mm, We did not. Caitlin Malcolm. One night, when I was in seventh grade, my mother had a dream. She dreamt that she took me and my brother out of school, packed us up in a camper, and took us around the United States in it. She woke up and she bought a camper. The news initially sounded like some sort of joke. I buzzed with confusion, sadness, anger, and a cocktail of unregulated girl hormones. This was how it played out. My mom got permission to leave her job for a few months. My parents poured over maps. Do you remember those? Yes, real life maps. They scrutinized these maps with hypervigilance and drew on them with a pen to mark our routes. We may be the last living humans who have navigated the entire United States using only maps that come on cardstock from the AAA offices. They planned out how we would drive around the entire perimeter of the country in our new pop-up camper which horrified me with its miniature size and aggressively outdated style. My nine-year-old brother and I were going to be unenrolled from school and homeschooled instead. They would leave our dog with my grandma and they would rent out our house. We would pack up our Toyota Previa to the gills with camping gear and we would hit the road. This of course was all devastating and unimaginable news to my ears. As a seventh grader, it was actually the worst news you could have ever given me. Any middle schooler will most likely openly tell you that they want to be with their family about 0% of the time, and I was now about to be forced to be with my insane parents, my annoying brother, in a small van, in nature with no real showers for multiple months. No friends, no boys, no television, no AOL messenger. In an American 13-year-old's world, this was literally criminal. Of course, this torture plan was one that couldn't be implemented in a day. It was going to take time. As an angry preteen, this gave me an interim period to downward spiral and build up a burning hatred for my parents. It also gave me ample time to fantasize about my escape. We lived in the middle of the woods. Does this surprise you so far based on what you're hearing about my family? This location was great news for a 12-year-old girl who wants to run away. I plotted out the perfect spot to set up a tent about 500 feet away from my house. Those suckers would never find me, I told myself, indulging in the satisfaction I felt with my own genius and bravery. This grandiose faux plan was what kept me going as people came by to look at our house for rent and I passive aggressively stayed in my room the entire time. It was what I told myself as my mom set up for people to come take a look at my pet birds and then said, 
Okay, Katie, say goodbye to them and sent them off without any forewarning, never to be seen again. It was what I told myself when I officially was taken out of school and I had to return all my textbooks. Well, okay, this part was actually fine with me, but everything else was obviously bullshit. A few nights before the departure date, I realized what I can assume all of you have probably known the entire time. It's not going to take a massive search party to locate a teenager whose hiding spot was less than a quarter mile away from her house. It was too late, I was going, and on a gloomy February dawn, we hit the road. I remember our first night. After setting up the tent trailer camper, which took about an hour and involved a hand crank and a lot of orders being barked by my father, we settled into Anderson, California. Anderson is known for its famous split pea soup, and I remember ordering it and glaring at my parents over the edge of the bowl as I defiantly slurped. Did it taste good? Yeah, absolutely. Would I ever admit them that to them? No, absolutely not. The next day we headed towards Arizona. At the state border, we pulled over and my mom turned from the passenger seat enthusiastically. Let's get a picture next to the welcome sign, she suggested. I begrudgingly agreed and my brother was excited to just get out of the car after hours of driving. As we posed under the sign, little did I know that we were setting into motion a tradition that would be forced on us at every state border for the rest of the trip. <laughs> Back in the car, my mom flipped rapidly through one of her many Lonely Planet guidebooks and decided we should stop to get some of the world's best cream puffs in the next town over. My brother looked excitedly at me to say, can you believe we get dessert in the middle of the day now? Isn't this amazing? They've been making cream puffs here for over 50 years, my mother read from the book as if amping up a crowd. They'll be so good, you'll be wishing we had them in California, my dad said jovially. They already have them in California, I grumbled, sticking my nose further into my Seventeen magazine. My acts of defiance came immediately and effortlessly. I refused to set help with setting up camp. I didn't try to befriend any of the kids at the campsites along the way like my brother did. My mom ordered us to write a daily journal entry because Technically, we were getting homeschooled and she didn't want us to forget our experiences. And every day, I would go on a one-woman strike by writing only about the food we ate that day. We also were supposed to do a math sheet every day, which I rebelled against. Take that, mom. If anyone is ensuring they won't have a future in engineering, it's this girl. I spent my evenings off the road, running to pay phones, locking myself inside, and using my precious quarters to call my friends and tell them about how my parents were ruining my life. When we stayed at the fancy campgrounds, there was every so often an internet hookup, and I would connect our blocky laptop and furiously type out similar self-pitying diatribes. My mom made the mistake of purchasing for me not only a boombox, but the Oops I Did It Again album by Britney Spears. <laughs> you better believe I cranked that shit on repeat for eight hours at a time as we trekked through the Southwest, daring my parents to say a word about it. If you've heard of any of that album, especially Dear Diary, you'll know that this was an intense act of aggression. 
After weeks of refusing submission, I finally fell into the routine and succumbed to spending my days stuffed into a van next to my Game Boy wielding brother. My nights were spent crammed into a pop-up camper with my entire family, huddling in a sleeping bag as far away from my brother as possible. Changing clothes involved finding a camp bathroom or hunkering down in the family van. Finding real showers at a campsite was a rare treat, celebrated by my mother like this was something we should all be ecstatic about. Pictures taken during this time, and believe me, there were many, all capture the essence perfectly. My parents looking enthusiastic, my brother looking thrilled to be sitting next to his junior high age sister, and me looking incensed by everything and everyone forever and ever. But during all of this, I was, whether I liked it or not, seeing things. We saw the Grand Canyon, and for the first time, though I didn't admit it out loud, I realized how epic nature could truly be. We rode horses on Mustang Island off the coast of Texas. Winding our way along the perimeter of the Gulf of Mexico, we ate the most amazing seafood I have ever tasted. We biked through the Everglades and came within feet of alligators who just seemed to hang out on the roads there. We visited beaches in Florida with perfect whole seashells. I held one in my hand and felt a small twinge of appreciation for the first time that I was experiencing something other than walking the crowded hallways of junior high. I ate key lime pie and toured old Louisiana mansions. I saw museums, an endless, plethora of museums. So many goddamn museums that one day I pulled off the greatest lie I have ever told. Mom said it's time to leave. I lied to my dad in a room full of old artillery at some historic Civil War location. He believed me. Dad's ready to leave. I whispered a few seconds later once I had found my mom. They realized that the only one who had ever had the idea to leave was me, but it was after we were already safely away from any type of learning environment. They were both livid, and I have never again felt so pleased with myself. <laughs> the frequency of my calls to friends tapered, but I was still pretty hellbent on hating my family. And I could not escape them. I could never, ever escape them. My annoyance, anger, and embarrassment festered. We happened to be in Daytona Beach during college spring break. Do you remember where you were when the thong song and mammals by Bloodhound Gang were wildly popular? I do. I was 13 with my parents at a beach within spitting distance from what turned out to be a wet t-shirt contest. Perhaps you remember watching MTV's Spring Break on TV. I was experiencing it in real time, next to my parents who were toting a cooler of mushy peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and insisting we put on our sunscreen. As my brother ran ahead to jump into the ocean, I begged them to let me just go back to the camper. Too afraid to look over at the mass of exposed nipples and keg stands, I turned to the sea and in that moment, I truly wanted a tsunami to come and take me out of my misery. I was reaching a breaking point and no amount of Britney on repeat was going to fix that. 
By the evening we first reached Washington, D.C., I was pushed over the edge. We had clocked 20 miles of museum strolling that day, all at the snail pace that occurs when you are reading every single sign and description, which my parents did. I hadn't slept in a real bed in weeks. We were eating spaghetti cooked over an easy-bake oven-sized stovetop for the 50th time. The straw that broke the camel's back was an announcement from my father as he set an alarm for 6 a.m. Well, I think we should do the first tour of the White House tomorrow. We don't want to wait in line all day to get in. A blind rage of claustrophobia and seething anger came over me. No, you can go to the White House and I'll stay here. Katie, this is one of America's greatest landmarks. You might even see the president. I don't want to see the president and I don't want to go. But it was made clear by 7 a.m. I was expected to be standing in a line, freezing cold, waiting to admire tapestries and portraits of various older white men in suits. I was done. I was done being crammed. I was done feeling dirty. I was done being around people that were either far too old or far too young to understand. I hate you, I yelled, slamming the tent trailer door and sprinting into darkness, realizing that I didn't even have a place to escape to. We were staying at a KOA campground. If you're not familiar, I should clarify for you that this is where the bourgeoisie go to roast their marshmallows. There are real one-room showers, and at this point in our trip, this really was a rare treat. Sobbing hysterically, I fled towards the shower. All I wanted to do was have a place of my own. Face covered in tears and snot, I frantically grasped the handle of the shower room and flung it open, ready to collapse inside. But it was not empty. I found myself face to face with a completely naked middle-aged man. The panic and alarm in our faces mirrored each other. His for this red-faced, hysterical preteen who had walked in on him. And me for the fact that I was now having to see my first real-life penis on a pale, confused man. This was rock bottom. I'm sorry, I remember blubbering in shock and horror, fleeing into the night. Even the campground did not have enough space or working locks to accommodate a girl and her tears. Maybe that was the turning point. We did continue to coexist in 10-foot proximities, but somewhere along the way, I stopped feeling so angry. I started to let myself acknowledge that maybe the world had discoveries to offer me beyond the halls of my middle school or the pages of my teen magazines. We continued to see things. We kayaked on a private lake and got caught in torrential downpours in the Adirondacks. Coming back to the campsite soaking wet and laughing, I felt some small spark of understanding for the adventure my mother craved and wanted to bestow upon us. We saw Mount Rushmore, we bathed in hot springs and saw Buffalo at Yellowstone, and I vowed to return to spot grizzly bears there one day. My brother and I finally beat Mario on our Game Boy Color. By the beginning of summer, we finally returned to our home, trashed by the renter, 
and our dog who had all but given up on us ever returning. I began to piece together what I had missed, which was everything, boyfriends, school dances, birthday parties, and nothing at the same time. Life went back to normal, and all I was short on was a seventh grade formal education and the emotional bruises that come with attending middle school. Sometimes I look back on those long days of driving, those hopeless nights of campfire cooking and surviving the elements, and I wonder, how on earth did my parents think it was a good idea to bring their daughter at the apex of her teenage shittiness on a trip around the country? Were they trying to escape me just as much as I was trying to escape them? But they weren't. I know they weren't. Their love for us, though cloying, was entirely pure. While it felt like a rare torture form in some moments, there were other moments where my lizard brain understood that what we were engaging in was the rarest and most delectable treat that life could have granted me. The itchy feet that my mother must have felt at that moment in her life felt so alien and offensive to me at the time. But now I understand the beauty in leaving what is routine and chasing after something so vibrantly unknown. While I'll never truly be able to pinpoint how much of a weird homeschooled girl I ended up being due to that cross-country escapade, I ultimately have to thank my mother for her dream and the audacity she had to make us all follow it. That was Caitlin Malcolm, everybody. That was Caitlin Malcolm, everybody. Next, we're hearing from Michelle O'Neill and her story, Ill-Fitting. Here's Michelle. So I'm not a huge fan of hospitals, especially not emergency rooms. Yet, there I was, sitting in the ER, on the fourth date with Ted, my future husband. We were waiting to see the doctor, and I was the one wearing the awkward gown that ties in the back. We had only met three weeks prior, and I didn't know when I met him at a mutual friend's party that I was heading into a perfect storm that would soon become my own private Bermuda Triangle. I was 26, living on my own with a couple of roommates and holding down my first chaotic corporate job. The company was a temp service agency, and I was hired full-time to manage one of their accounts. We were placing dozens of workers weekly at a little startup company named Qualcomm. <laughs> Keeping up with the daily new hire paperwork and giving welcome orientations to each and every phone parts technician was nearly impossible. I was feeling anxious by the end of the first week, and those feelings never went away. Outside of work, the excitement of dating Ted was giving me butterflies and goosebumps, and it felt like my life was on the cusp of something new. The plan for the fourth date was for Ted to book a hotel, drive down from Los Angeles, and spend the weekend with me. All week, my nerves were a wreck. At work, I found it hard to concentrate. I couldn't stomach much food, and my brain was racing with best and worst case scenarios of how my life was about to unfold. So much so that at night, I was tossing and turning and only sleeping two or three hours at a time. By Saturday, I was scatterbrained. And once Ted arrived in San Diego, it wasn't long after we shared a hug and a hello that he sensed there had been a shift. He mentioned that I seemed tired. He asked, are you feeling okay? 
I said, I'm okay. I just had a long, hard, busy week, but I'm really excited to see you. He said, all right, but just let me know if you're not up for it. I'll cancel our, our dinner reservation. We can always just order in. Within a couple of hours of attempting to relax at the hotel, I couldn't hide my symptoms anymore. My mind was exhausted and racing, both at the same time. I opened up and shared that it had been more than a hard week. It had been an extremely rough one. And I wasn't sure why I could no longer sleep, eat, or focus. He said, okay, maybe we need to get you some help. Is there anyone you want me to call? A few years prior, I had been in psychotherapy to deal with sexual abuse issues from my childhood. So I thought of calling Melody, my former therapist, and had high hopes she could talk me off this anxiety ledge I was now perched upon. And then I'd book an appointment and I'd start seeing her again ASAP. So we dialed 411 and found her in the directory. Ted dialed the number and left a brief message on her voicemail. She called back within 30 minutes. We were on the phone for only a moment or two when she gently, yet firmly, suggested I hang up and call 911. On the inside, I thought, oh shit, this is bad. I knew something was up, but call 911? Really? On the outside, I took a deep breath, looked at Ted, and said, the hospital's not far from here. Will you drive me to the ER? I don't want to go in an ambulance. He nodded yes, and off we went. And that's where Ted met his future in-laws for the first time. Walking into that ER, I was ready to surrender to whatever was happening to me. The fatigue, the exhaustion, the racing thoughts, and this losing track of my short-term memory was scaring me. I needed some kind of break from the chaos in my head, and I definitely got one. Let's call it a psych break. It's kind of like spring break, but not. Officially, I believe it's called a psychotic break. And when the doctor in the emergency room says you're having one, it's super freaky. The results of date night in the ER were life-changing. I ended up leaving with a new future husband and a bipolar diagnosis. My family and I discussed possible treatment options with the medical team. And after weighing out the choices, my parents and I signed waivers and left the building against medical advice. My folks did not want to see me admitted to Mesa Vista, the local mental health hospital, where decades earlier, we all had gone to visit my grandmother, Dorothy, who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder just after my mom was born. So instead of being institutionalized, I would get to recover privately in the safety of my childhood home, where no one would have to show proper ID and sign in or out to see me. The drugs I was prescribed for this sweet little staycation had me in a zoned out haze of glory with a slight touch of paranoia. I have no idea what I was on. I just remember them being described as antipsychotic drugs that will help. I recall there being a tight schedule of when the meds were administered because the morning meds were meant to wake me up, the daytime meds to keep me floating, and the evening meds were meant to knock me out for deep sleep. But apparently, 
not dead to the world kind of sleep, because one night I went sleepwalking from my room out to the garage, carefully maneuvering past some unorganized obstacles in order to grab an ice pick that was part of an old bar tool kit near my dad's workbench. How I spotted this pick in my waking hours is beyond me. And the fact that I snatched it in my sleep, it's quite the feat. I then retraced those same steps back to bed with said ice pick in hand. When having to explain myself in the morning, I said, I need it for protection from my bad dreams. Oh, my poor parents. They must have been pretty disturbed to discover my worn-out teddy bear had been replaced with a rusty old ice pick in the dark at night. I suppose this daily medication cocktail was created for me to be functional, but not a danger to myself or anyone else. I just know I was really out of it for three weeks until my 27th birthday. My first wish was for independence, but in order to regain my freedom, I had to deal with this diagnosis and try bipolar on for size. I did my best to make it fit and chose the path of least resistance. I didn't want to further upset my folks. I saw in their eyes how very worried they were and felt the fear as we negotiated my next steps. My focus was to be okay for their sake and for mine in that order. A couple of months after my diagnosis, I moved to LA. I had to find a new doctor. Luckily, I liked the first psychiatrist I met with. Let's call him Dr. God of Sky. Though he pronounced it Dr. Godofsky. <laughs> Not as cosmic and magical as my way of saying it, but he was a good doc who felt heaven sent. I stayed under his care for about 13 years. I was a good patient and took the prescribed drugs as directed. At first, we met weekly, then monthly. And after a few years of smooth sailing, I went to him quarterly timing each appointment for, the, for after the blood work results were in. Eventually, as long as my blood serum reports were within normal range, then I was good to go for another three months. Year over year, I spent a lot of time in a therapy chair, talking it all out. I wanted to avoid reaching that 911 tipping point ever again, and taking the meds helped with that. I wasn't feeling the ends of the spectrum anymore. No big joys, no deep sorrows either. Just sedated smiles when times were good and mild sadness when appropriate. But that wasn't enough for me. In therapy, I had many occasions to drill down into my family's medical history. It could be determined, perhaps, that my diagnosis is a hybrid of sorts. One side of my family had a strong history of mental health issues while the other side of my family included a sexual predator that preyed on me repeatedly until I hit puberty. So was this psychotic break a part of my DNA? Or was it a result of disassociation due to the trauma I endured? Was I dealing with bipolar or PTSD issues? So many questions left unanswered. All my trouble started with the years of sexual trauma when I was a kid. The repeated invasion of my body left my brain battered and my soul conflicted. I lived through my trauma years in fear, keeping my invisible scars a big secret. I certainly could not erase what had happened to me, though I would try hard to forget. I also dreamed of setting myself free from the internal angst I was coping with and yet had no idea how to heal my wounds way back then. 
Coming of age and becoming a teenager with a dark, taboo secret was scary. My screams of panic never made it out. But somehow, I did. I made it out of high school and managed to graduate from SDSU. That's also the same time period when I outed my predator to my family. He was my father's father, and he had remarried. And I was determined to make sure the abuse stopped with me. So, as I was dealing with the fallout and shrapnel that is incest, with the help of my former therapist and my mom, I confronted my monster and his new wife. He sat there, denied everything, and called me a liar. That was it. I stood up, looked him in the eye, and said, no. You are the fucking liar. As I flew out the door, he hurried to his porch, yelling <sighs> into the street. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just as crazy and bipolar as your grandma Dorothy. Upon reaching the milestone of 12 years without a mental health crisis, Dr. G and I began to discuss the idea that maybe a complex PTSD di diagnosis might actually fit me better than leaving me in the bipolar box for the rest of my days on Earth. So we started a new protocol and switched up my meds. Gradually, we got to the lowest dose possible with the ultimate goal of being off all meds. Slow and steady, we achieved this goal and scheduled our final appointment, knowing that I could come back anytime as needed. Before we parted ways, the good doc made sure I had solid support system of good humans that would help me in case, that would help me and maybe more importantly, call me out if I was starting to have symptoms of mania or depression. By now, I was 39, and I could easily confirm that yes, I have good humans in my life. <laughs> he then sent me off into the wild blue yonder with a sample packet of in-case-of-emergency drugs. He said, here, put these somewhere safe. If you ever hit crisis mode, take two and call 911. And in the next breath, he said, you know, I don't blame you, kid. You deserve a chance to see if you can live a life without a daily dose of medication and the care of a psychiatrist. I sincerely hope I never see you again as my patient. And I wish you well. It's taken me 22 years of searching, but I finally have my answer. And now, I get to be fully in charge of managing my mental health in ways that fit me best. And I'm happy to report that those in case of emergency pills weren't needed. And if they ever are, I know where to go and who to call. First time vampire, Michelle O'Neill, everybody. Our third and final storyteller today is Elizabeth Morrow and her story, You Hold, I'll Pull. Here's Elizabeth. Okay, my mother. My mother drove me 150 miles to buy my first bra. Apparently, there wasn't a single one in northern New Hampshire small enough to fit me. But she was a tireless hunter, and my breasts had been bugging her for nearly two years. They sat on my chest like a couple of newly cracked eggs. Not, not grade A free-range chicken eggs. More like pigeon or quail. 
My mother worried about those eggs. My shirts were too thin. They showed too much yolk, I guess. She hated the way I hunched my shoulders and hid myself in baggy sweaters. She wasn't shy when it came to her body, and she found it irritating when her 12-year-old daughter did. Her solution? A girl's trip to Boston, which she called civilization. She marched me into Saks, where 20 minutes later, I shivered, bare-chested, in a dressing room while Mom and the saleswomen shook their heads and put the smallest bras back in the boxes. My mother insisted there must be a solution. She'd driven three, three hours with a cranky preteen, and she wasn't going home without a victory. I stood there naked and powerless while the two women scrutinized and strategized. I wanted to die. <laughs> then the saleswoman, a bossy, bosomy woman with a Brooklyn accent and a cigarette laugh, brought out the only option left, a training bra. An elongated Band-Aid with straps and two bits of cotton that flattened my raw little yolks until they looked like they'd been fried over easy. <laughs> my mother and her new best friend stood with the curtain to the dressing room flung open while they surveyed their work. Other customers eyed me and chuckled as they passed to their dressing rooms. Close the curtain, I hissed. We're all women, Mom said. There's no need to be self-conscious. I hated her then. <laughs> I, I, I hated them all. I got through the rest of the day imagining the saleswoman gasping for air as she was strangled with her own brassiere. <laughs> I imagined a bloody 10-car wreck on our way home that only I would survive. <laughs> and if by chance my mom did survive, I'd never let her near me or not into a dressing room again with me. But 25 years later, we were once again in Boston for a Just Us trip. I was in my 30s and taking a break from an ordinary job that my mother insisted on describing as high-powered businesswoman. She was dismayed when she saw my outfit that day, another long baggy sweater over stretchy leggings. But I ignored her, and she let it go while we lunched on raw oysters and thick clam chowder before heading to a movie. On the way to the, on the, way to the theater, Mom saw a sign. Saks was having a sale. <laughs> it, it would, she pointed out, be possible to get to the theater by walking through the store. Her eyes shone. Her nostrils quivered. She vanished into Saks, and I, full of lunch and empty of suspicion, followed her. I found myself surrounded by expensive designer business suits. Even the sale price was exorbitant, $250 for a skirt and another $350 for a matching jacket, way out of my budget range. Still, I was eyeing a pair of black silk pants when I heard a sort of chirp behind me. Hi, I'm Carol. I'm the Dana Buckman specialist. May I help you? When I turned, I found a tiny parakeet of a woman in a lime green silk miniskirt, matching jacket, spike heels, and a glossy pink smile. Her turquoise eyes glittered at me. I edged away and looked over my shoulder for my mother. By the time I looked back, Carol was holding a beautiful black, silk, black skirt and a great black jacket. The jacket was my size, but the skirt was at least a size too small. Just then, my mother returned. Oh, that's perfect, she said to Carol. My daughter, you know, is a high-powered businesswoman. <laughs> Carol, to her credit, didn't bat an eye. Instead, she invited us to follow her to the dressing room. Now, it would just be a few minutes, I told myself, and the suit was great. Why not at least pretend to be a high-powered businesswoman? 
Inside the dressing room loomed a large pedestal surrounded by three huge mirrors. I saw my reflection in each of them and quailed a little. My mother told me she was going out to look for a blouse that would complete the outfit. I removed my leggings. I sucked in my stomach, reached for the skirt, zipped it part way. I was happy with what I saw. I peeled off my sweater and climbed up on the pedestal for a better look. Not bad, but it was a little too small. Just then, a knock on the door. Honey, it's me. My mother had returned, empty-handed, but still eager to help. She left the door swinging open and launched in. Very nice, smashing, but you definitely need the next size up. Close the door. Oh, that's right, she said. You were always so modest, I never understood why. That was it. I needed to get out of that skirt and get to the movies before she said another word. Then, I noticed the zipper wouldn't move. At least, it would not go down. Mom, something's wrong. My mother adjusted her glasses and stooped to get a better look. Maybe some material caught in it, she said. Reflexively, I yanked. The zipper shot upward and stopped at the waistband, which was now so tight I could not take a complete breath. My mother said, oh my God. She straightened, her, and she straightened up and stared at my backside at horror. I was gasping. No matter how straight I pulled myself up or attempted to suck it in, a roll of pink and white flab flopped over the top of the waistband. I twisted around to see. The zipper had derailed. The skirt looked split open, exposing my back and the hole in my floral print cotton jockey for her briefs. <laughs> I heard Carol's voice outside the door. Did your mom find you? She sing-songed through the louvered doors. Yes, thank you, she's right here. How is everything? Fine, just fine. My mother's eyebrows shot up. I shook my head at her. I have to run over to my manager's office for just a sec. Be right back, okay? Okay. My mother said, don't be crazy, she can help. It's her job. We just need to zip it back down, I said. You hold, I'll pull. All right, she said. She took the outer edges of the zipper and pulled them together. I reached around and pinched the tiny little zipper in my fingers and tugged downward, trying not to breathe any more than I had to. Nothing. My mother snorted out a laugh but reined it in. Barely. Betsy, this thing costs a fortune. You do not want to be the one to ruin it. Keep trying, I ordered. We tugged and pulled, pulled and tugged. Still, nothing. A finger hovered over the panic button inside my brain. I was stuck. I was stuck inside a $250 skirt I couldn't afford to buy in the first place. I looked at my mother and my finger jammed down hard on the panic button. The woman who bore me, nurtured me, and somewhere deep inside must love me, was laughing so hard she could not stand upright. <laughs> she crossed her legs to keep from peeing her pants. Just then, we heard Carol again from behind the door. I'm back, how is everything? My mother pulled open the door and fled for the nearest ladies' room. You were really determined to get into this skirt, weren't you? Carol said a few minutes later. She was peering at the skirt, trying to assess the level of severity when my mother returned. Carol reached for the zipper. You hold, I'll pull, she said to my mother. We've tried that, Mom said. But she grabbed the edges of the ruptured zipper and pulled them together as tight as she could. Carol pulled down with everything she had. Bent at the waist, struggling for breath, I pledged to myself if I were ever released from this bondage, 
I would never, ever shop with my mother again. I would never try on anything that cost a month's rent. I would wear elastic. It's, it's not working, my mother said. We may have to get the jaws of life. This was Carol's attempt at humor. I, stare, I stared into, my, into the mirror at my mother, who collapsed again into another giggle. Because of her, I'd have to wear this skirt like a girdle of shame for the rest of my life. Well, we'll have to call tailoring, Carol said. This time there was silence in the dressing room after she left. What was tailoring? And what would it do that hadn't already been done? Within minutes, there was a short rap on the door, and Carol entered with a tiny woman in a cardigan. Picture Dr. Ruth on a bad day. The woman carried a large wicker basket filled with needles, thread, and blades of all sizes. Her mouth was a single grim line. What is the problem? Carol simply pointed to the back of the skirt. Ah, the woman put down the basket and moved in with a determined expression. You will hold, I will pull, she said. <laughs> Carol didn't move. Been there. Ah, we will have to cut. The woman reached into her basket and pulled out a gleaming set of scissors. She angled them and moved towards the skirt, her lip curled in disgust. Then, snip, I could breathe again. Within seconds of my release, Carol and tailoring escaped with the skirt. It was just mom and me, shivering in my holy undies, grateful that the store wouldn't make me pay for the skirt. All I wanted was to get to the movie and put the whole thing behind me. Then mom held up the silk jacket with a wistful look. You know, maybe you could order a larger skirt just to see, she said. Then she caught my eye in the mirror and put the jacket back on the hanger with a sigh. I'll wait outside, she said. She left the door wide open. A scream gathered in my now-released gut. I felt it roaring to my throat. But before I could make a single sound, my mother returned. She smiled gently at me and carefully closed the door behind her. Betsy Morrow, everybody! Elizabeth Morrow. Her novel, Casualties, is out now, and you should do yourself the kindness of picking that up. That also concludes Will It Fit? We do hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed preparing it for you. Your storytellers once again were Caitlin Malcolm, Michelle O'Neill, and Elizabeth Morrow. Make sure you subscribe to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast if you haven't already. And if you would, please do us a holiday courtesy and leave us a rating and a review. It helps more people find us. We don't know how, but we just accept it. If you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get in touch with us, upcoming live shows that you can be a part of, and more, pop over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is So Say We All's program director. Joe Hudak is our production manager. And Brent Hennepy is our social media manager. Our original music is provided by The Gift That Keeps On Giving, Kurt Conan of AMFM Music. Our outro music, Blue Little, kindly given to us by 1032. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Preppis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We'd love to have you as one of those members. It does help keep the lights on. Just hop over to sosayweallonline.com slash support and sign up at any level of monthly giving to get invites to parties, merch, and so much more. 
Thanks for listening. Don't be a stranger, and let's talk again soon.